Would you please stand for the reading of scripture? If you're able, and if you're able, stand for all the reading of the scripture. It's a long passage today, but I would remind you from Nehemiah 8 that when Ezra got up to read the law, he read from morning until midday. So this should be okay for you this morning. We're reading this morning from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 41. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. 
And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is God's word. Please be seated. Well, this has been an amazing start to a new year, hasn't it? Uh, I've heard so many people say as we got to the end of 2020 how thankful they were that 2020 was about to be over and that they had high hopes for a better 2021. And it seems that in many ways we're not off to a very good start. The reality is that we do not know what 2021 will hold for good or ill, for better or worse. 2021 may turn out to be better than 2020, whatever that may mean, and depending on your perspective, but it could be worse. And in fact, if we think about the long-term historical perspective and the global perspective, we may look back on 2020 as a comparatively good year. I want to mention briefly at the beginning here that today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday a day when we appropriately mourn 60 million babies whose lives were terminate, had been terminated by abortion since Roe v. Wade in 1973. Uh, we grieve this loss of life, and I want to say it's a loss of life which disproportionately targets African-American communities in this country at a, rate of five, a ratio of five to one. How we need the gospel how we need his conviction, the repentance it calls for, the forgiveness of the cross, the godliness that grows as fruit from the gospel and the courage and the new life and hope that the gospel brings. It is during times like this that it is good to be reminded that we do not put our trust in our own hopes or our own human capabilities or our own health and safety. We put our trust in God alone, who is faithful in all circumstances and in every year. Psalm 112.7 says that the man of God is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. And Proverbs 31.25 says that the woman of God laughs at the days to come. Not because the days to come will be easy or full of comfort, but because she knows and we know that God holds the whole world and every detail of our lives in his gracious, powerful, sovereign, purposeful hands. God will do what is good and right and best for us. And he will continue without fail to fulfill his grand redemptive purpose for all creation. You know, sometimes when I'm asked what my favorite Bible verse is, it's a terrible question, it's an almost impossible question to answer. But when I'm asked, I will often say Romans 13, 12. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. And when we left Covenant College after 10 years as president, the wife of one of our professors, she was a gifted and creative maker of tapestries. She presented us with her artistic representation of those words from Romans 13, 12. The tapestry depicts the darkness of the night giving way to the brightness of the day. 
And if you ask me today what I think of the state of the world, that's probably going to be the answer I'll give. As tough as things are, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. Those short, ten, one-syllable words bear the clues to the whole story from beginning to end. The night, of course, reminds us the original perfection of the creation and of our human race fell into the evil darkness of sin. But the day is at hand, and that phrase at hand means both now and all and ongoing. It means, as we are familiar, the phrase that we're familiar with, it means the already and the not yet. The already of the victory of the cross. Jesus' sufficient substitutionary death for us. And also the empty tomb, his glorious resurrection, his ascension and his reign right now at the right hand of the Father. But at hand also includes the not yet. The trajectory that is leading on toward his coming again in glory and power when everything will be finally put right in the new heaven and the new earth where we will feast forever on the riches of God's blessings of which even during times like this we get small, teasing, appetizing tastes. And then Paul says, it's nearer now than when we first believed. It's getting nearer and nearer and nearer. And if Paul could say in the first century that it was nearer now then than when he first believed, think how much nearer it must be for us. Even during times like ours, with all the political and social chaos and violence and anger and harsh disagreement and growing threats to religious freedom and anxiety and fear all around, I'm grateful that in two weeks, Robin will begin our sermon series in 1 Peter. Like Paul, Peter surely also saw bleakness and disorder in his generation. Troubles and trials and persecution and suffering. Peter will refer to his readers and to all of us as elect exiles. Who even as they suffer, nevertheless are sure of a living hope and an imperishable inheritance. And at the end of his second letter, Peter looks ahead to the day of the Lord when the not yet will become the eternal and glorious already. Peter would surely agree with Paul that the night is far gone and the day is at hand. But what is the basis, the firm foundation for a hope like that? What can we depend on when so much of what is familiar and predictable and orderly seems to be unraveling? When society is convulsing and even much that is happening within what we call evangelicalism is virtually unrecognizable, sliding with the shifting sands of culture. Well, we know what it is. Of course, it's God's word, the holy scriptures, God's inspired and utterly true revelation which tells us that true, grand story from creation all the way to consummation and provides the only sure and firm foundation for every generation of God's elect people. It's this story in these pages that provides our spiritual and moral bearings for navigating a world like ours. Peter himself has much to say about the authority and sufficiency and assurance and hope of God's word. 
In, in 2 Peter, the first chapter, there are those wonderful words where Peter exhorts his readers. He says, to pay attention to the word as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. We heard earlier from Psalm 19, the words of David, the word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Even and especially, he says, in the midst of affliction. And James encourages us to receive this word implanted in us because it is able to save our souls. But Peter does not just teach about God's word. Peter preaches God's word. He tells us and he shows us. And so as we prepare for our journey through 1 Peter in the weeks and months ahead, this morning we're going to consider Peter the preacher. You know, we witnessed Peter's preaching first recorded here in Acts 2. The story of that memorable feast at Pentecost. When the promise of Jesus was fulfilled in the coming of the Holy Spirit to empower his apostles for gospel preaching and witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And I'm sure you know, you may have your own personal experiences, first sermons are often memorable. Uh, I can imagine that Robin has vivid memories of his first sermon here at Westminster back in September, his first sermon uh, among people whom he would serve. Uh, I remember my first sermon at College Church in Wheaton in 1996 when I was a candidate to be a pastor there. And it's memorable not for a good reason. Because at a certain point, as I was preaching, I became tongue-tied. I could not formulate and get my words out clearly. And I had to stop and say a quiet prayer, which God was mercifully pleased to answer. And after a few moments, I was able to go on. Well, here in Acts 2, we have what was probably Peter's first sermon. At least the first one recorded for us. And its timing in Peter's life is absolutely amazing. Just 50 days after he had committed the greatest denial of Christ in history. You know Peter had held a position of primacy among the disciples, whether he deserved it or not. And he did have a particularly high view of himself. Remember his presumptuous words in Mark 14, even if everyone else falls away, I will not fall away. Just hours before his triple denial. And it was just one and a half months later, he stands up and is the first public spokesman for this new phase of grace and gospel. Just 50 days from fearful denial to faithful declaration. And in a place where the stakes were very high, thousands of people gathered, having just seen or heard this strange apostolic phenomenon of fire and languages and people reacting in various ways. Some were amazed and perplexed, wanting to know what it all meant, but some were convinced that this was just a rabble of drunkards. And it's at that moment that Peter preaches his first sermon. And that certainly, right off the bat, ought to fill us with thanksgiving and hope that God could be so merciful to Peter would enable him to be so transformed by grace, so steeped in the scriptures, so filled with the power of the Holy Spirit that he could be God's instrument in that crucial moment in spite of his recent sin and failure. But this is a first sermon in another sense as well. The first sermon, as far as we know, that anyone preached 
after the events of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. So this is the first sermon in the period of church history that is still going on today. We call it the last days. Started after Jesus completed and fulfilled his God-ordained saving mission and will last until he comes again at the end of time. So this sermon serves not only as an encouragement about how God can transform and use sinners, but also as a kind of example, the very first example of how to preach during our period of church history. Now, there's not a rigid formulaic methodology here. There are surely multiple styles and approaches for faithful expository preaching. But we should surely attend, especially and carefully, to sermons that are recorded for us in Scripture. God's breathed out inerrant word. For I believe they can give guidance both to preachers in how to preach and to congregations regarding what kind of preaching they should expect from their pastors. This sermon of Peter helps us answer questions like, how should we preach? In the full light of the reality of the completion of the saving events of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And as we look forward to the day of the Lord. And what kind of preaching should God's people, you, expect from Robin and me and all those who preach here? What must we hope for from the scriptures week by week in the midst of troubling times like ours? Well, we've already heard Peter's sermon. In Acts 2. And now we want to talk about and think about this sermon as a kind of pattern and model for us as well. Things we should hope for and desire and long for and expect as the word of God provides our firm foundation in our generation. And I want to identify this morning seven characteristics of faithful expository preaching during the last days. And I'm not setting Robin up, giving him a list of things that he has to check week by week. But what a blessing it is to have Peter showing us, as he preaches the word, some of the key elements of what it means for us to hear the word of God preached. Seven characteristics. First, Peter recognized the setting and the opportunity. Context and occasion matter. The crowd was indeed curious about what was going on. They were asking, what does this mean? Or wondering if these men had just had too much to drink. And so Peter responds in that setting. It wasn't just all application, but his sermon was clearly related to where his listeners were and what was on their minds. You know, this is one of the challenges of being a guest preacher. You may not really understand the setting and the context, who the people are, what their concerns and questions are, what challenges they are currently facing in their personal lives and in their communities. And this is why the primary place for preaching is rightly in the local church community, where a pastor lives and ministers day by day and month by month and year by year and gets to know his people and understand them and love them and becomes able to preach the word that is in a way that is lovingly and sometimes correctively relevant and responsive. 
Peter's sermon shows that he understood the context and the occasion. Second, Peter's sermon was remarkably simple in its outline and in its language. He told them about Christ and he called for their commitment. He did not try to impress them with the complexity of his intellectual understanding. He did not refer to obscure scholarly learning. Yes, he referred extensively to the Old Testament, but he explained it clearly and simply and as much as was needed to make his primary point about Jesus. My father once listened to a preacher who was very impressive as a theological scholar and who wanted to prove it. And my father's comment was, on the surface, he's profound. Meaning that he used big words and complicated ideas, but there was actually very little biblical gospel depth and impact. And I just want to say, be careful of preachers who try to impress you with how smart or educated they are. We should be only as complicated as is necessary to make the scripture itself clear so that listeners will actually hear and respond to the message. C.S. Lewis was one of the finest scholars of medieval literature in the 20th century. He read and understood multiple languages. His scholarship was deep and broad. And yet Lewis was intent on putting complex ideas into language that virtually anyone could understand. And in a wonderful essay that was written about C.S. Lewis, the preacher, the author writes, after doing the difficult work of preparation and study, Lewis then went further. He digested what he himself had learned and passed it on to his audience in a way they could recognize and understand. And then this comment that Lewis made, which is for Robin, who's in the midst of his ordination exams, Lewis said, what we want to see in every ordination exam is a compulsory paper on translation. In other words, taking a passage from some theological work and turning it into plain vernacular English. Lewis believed that if you cannot explain something to a sensible person without resorting to technical language, then you do not understand the thing itself. Some of Lewis's most remarkable sermons were actually given in gatherings of British soldiers during war, World War II. And sadly, none of those sermons are preserved for us. But it is said that those sermons were at once personal and passionate and powerful in connecting with and convicting and encouraging those brave, ordinary men who were on their way, many of them, to their deaths. Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher, said, a preacher must preach so that people cannot misunderstand him even if they try to do so. Peter's preaching was simple, not simplistic, simple and clear enough so that his listeners could understand. Third, Peter's sermon was scriptural, absolutely full of the scriptures. From Joel 2, from Psalm 16, from Psalm 110. In fact, 11 long verses of this passage, almost half of Peter's own words, were quotations from the scriptures. How tempting it can be to include all sorts of interesting and engaging material in sermons. Stories, illustrations, and so on. Not Peter. He is intent on doing what we call exposition of the scriptures explaining what the text of the Bible means in all of its beauty, in all of its drama, in all of its truth and grace, and what are its implications and applications for those who hear. 
pastor that many of us know, Kent Hughes, comments on this in a short talk he gave called Preach the Bible, Not Your Dog, referring to the temptation of some preachers to use cute stories about puppies and bunnies. Kent provides a simple instruction at the end. Here's the preacher. Here's the Bible. There are the people. The Bible is what I am to explain to the people. Peter's sermon was scriptural. Fourth, Peter's sermon was Christ-centered. Verse 22, Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 23, this Jesus. Verse 31, the Christ. Verse 32, this Jesus. Verse 36, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. As you listen to preachers, or as you prepare to preach or teach God's word yourself, be sure to attend to the Christ-centeredness. That must be the focus. We do not preach the Bible as a source of moral wisdom or ethical advice or even theological orthodoxy. We do not teach the people, teach the Bible to help people live happy lives. We preach and teach the Bible to lift up Jesus Christ. He himself says that all the scriptures, Moses and all the prophets, testify about him and bear witness to him. And I love the way Robin introduced our, our theme word, word. At WPC, we teach Christ from all the scriptures. Again, this from Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher, who exhorted other preachers. Spurgeon said, preach you Christ, and Christ, and Christ, and Christ, and nothing else but Christ. And he said, when opposition to Christ-centered preaching arose, he replied, let the dogs bark. It is their nature. Go on preaching Christ crucified. And this, again, from Kent Hughes, who tells the story of a small church in England where a faithful woman attending week after week would listen to the sermons, and she would become worked up if she discerned that the preacher was not faithfully and clearly preaching Jesus from all the scriptures. So from time to time, she would shout out, shout out from the pew, Get him up! Get Jesus up! Now, I'm not recommending that any of you do that. But what a reminder of the priority of exalting the person and work and glory of Jesus Christ from all the scriptures in our preaching. Here in Acts 2, Peter's preaching was Christ-centered. Fifth, Peter's, pre Peter's sermon was convicting. Verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Now, we know that it is the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction. The preacher does not and cannot manufacture that. Although some have tried, following the example of Charles Finney and others who tried to stir up emotion in a service. But the preacher must be aware that conviction is what God intends to happen to people when they hear the word preached. By the Spirit's power and purpose, they will be moved and convicted in their hearts. Remember Hebrews 4.12, those familiar words. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And those word, words I already quoted from James, that the word implanted is able to save our souls. And notice that Peter does not ever let his readers, his hearers, slip away from the conviction. Verse 23 
This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified, you, you, you. Now, of course, the preacher must be careful. First, to recognize that the conviction of the Spirit by God's word applies first to himself and his own heart. Yes, he is the preacher, but he is also a sinner in need of the convicting mercy and grace of God. So even as the preacher preaches, there can be no self-righteousness for the preacher must realize that he is also one of the listeners and rightly comes under the convicting power of the word himself. But also second, the preacher must be careful to be faithful to the scriptures, to speak where the Bible speaks and to remain silent where the Bible is silent. It is not the preacher's job to convict the people so that they believe and do what he wants them to believe and do or to follow his personal scruples or his personal politics but rather faithfully to point his listeners to what God, through his word, wants them to believe and to do. We're not trying to get people to to be like us. We must pray that we will be instruments of God, that the preaching of God's word in the gathering of God's people will be an instrument of God in bringing conviction and repentance and heart change to those who listen according to the purposes of God. Peter's preaching was convicting by the power of the Holy Spirit. Six, Peter's sermon was practical. Do you hear it? Verse 12, the crowd began with the question, what does this mean? And ends with the question, verse 37, what shall we do? I tell you, it doesn't get much better than that if you're a preacher. What does this mean? And as a result, what shall we do? Understanding leading to action. And note Peter's very practical response. Repent, confess and repent of your sins and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Preaching is meant to bring about real change and real action and that is what God's word does. It is the instrument that God uses by the power of the Holy Spirit to change us and to accomplish his purposes in us and through us. And as we gather week after week, either to preach or to listen to preaching, we should pray that our minds and hearts would be open to that kind of convicting work of the Holy Spirit in us. Remember the the words of James also, who said that hearing the word must be accompanied by doing the word putting it into practice, into real life. And so the preacher must always have in mind that question, how does this passage affect how people should live, how they should act, how they should speak, what they should do? And my encouragement to you is always to think as you listen to preaching, brothers, sisters, what shall we do? What are the implications and applications for our life and spiritual discipleship together? Peter's preaching was practical. And finally, Peter's sermon was, I think we have to say, passionate. He got their attention. We know that Peter himself was a passionate man capable of intense emotions, both good and bad. He was ready to jump into action, whether wisely or impulsively. 
And my guess is this, this sermon was probably not delivered in a timid whisper. My guess is that Peter was loud. Now that does not mean that every preacher, every preacher should imitate Peter in personality or style of delivery. You know, there are a lot of young preachers who try to imitate John Piper or Tim Keller. And that embarrasses most John Piper and Tim Keller and also makes the young fellows look a little foolish, to tell you the truth. So our, our goal is not to be copycats of anyone. It is said, but it is said that Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest preachers in history, gave his most famous and convicting sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, very quietly, hunched over the podium. But it is also said that his voice seethed with a quiet intensity and passion. And his listeners were riveted and attentive. And I want to say, notice how Peter did not get their attention. As passionate as he may have been, he did not talk about himself. He offered no personal anecdotes, no cute stories, no jokes, no photographs or videos or whatever the first century equivalent of that would have been. Peter surely preached in a way that would fit the definition of preaching given by probably the greatest English preacher ever, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that preaching is logic on fire. It is the theologic of the gospel and the word of God, fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when J.I. Packer first heard Lloyd-Jones preach, he said that it came over him like an electric shock. Peter's preaching was passionate, powered by the Holy Spirit. So... What do we learn about what kind of preaching we should do, what kind of preaching we should expect from Peter? Preaching that is responsive to context and occasion, that knows and understands and cares about the spiritual life and lives of the people who listen. Preaching that is simple, not simplistic, but simple, sufficient to communicate the truth of the scripture so that listeners can understand and respond and not to impress listeners with how smart the preacher is. Preaching that is scriptural, full of scripture, focusing on making the truth of God's word clear. Preaching that is Christ-centered, that brings listeners to the point of confronting the person and truth and grace and glory of Jesus from any section of scripture. Preaching that gets him up. Fifth, preaching that is convicting, that aims at the heart and shines the light of God's word into the dark places for the sake of repentance and faith. Six, preaching that is practical, that never forgets the question, brothers, what shall we do? Helps the listeners see how their lives must be different as a result of this word from God. Finally, seventh, preaching that is passionate and attention-getting, not because it is entertaining or funny, but because it is fueled by the fire of the Holy Spirit. And I just want to pray, and I ask you to pray, that God would enable all who preach here in this community to be mindful of this wonderful example from Peter. May we long for this kind of preaching. May we not be satisfied with preaching that fails to take these important things into account. And I want to say, especially as we face ongoing and even increasing challenges as God's elect exiles, let us lean more and more into these glorious opportunities we have to hear the word of God read and preached. It is indeed our firm foundation. As Peter says, a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts.
And I want to say that if you're here this morning and you do not know the truth and beauty and grace and glory of the scriptures as a light shining into your hearts. What a wonderful way to go away this morning, asking that God would shine the light of his scripture into your heart and show you Jesus as a light shining in a dark place. The word that James says is able to save your souls. All of that by God's grace and for his glory alone. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable, submissive, obedient, glorifying to you, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.